Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Rima Rattan. Political philosopher Charles Mills died on September 20. Mills was a major figure in philosophy for bringing white supremacy to the fore in his work, changing the way we speak about race. Tonight I'm talking to race scholar Debbie Bargelli and philosopher Helen No about his work and legacy. I'll let them introduce themselves. So my name is Helen Ngo. I would like to start by paying my respects to the traditional elders of Wurundjeri country, Kulin Nations, where I am based. I was born and raised here and am a child to refugees who were able to make a home here. So I acknowledge that, that we were able to make a home on what is essentially and remains stolen lands. So I'm a philosopher by training. I work in critical philosophy of race. I'm affiliated with Deakin University. I'm Debbie Bagalli. I'm a Kamilaroi and Wanarua woman from northwest New South Wales. I'm currently living and working on the lands of the Kondamuka people in southeast Queensland. And I was born and raised on Durable country in Wollongong, New South Wales. So I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners, the Kondamuka peoples of the nation that I'm living and working on today. Currently, I'm a postdoctoral research fellow. I position myself as an Indigenous critical race theorist, and I'm based at Griffith University in Brisbane. Helen, do you want to start by giving a sort of a broad introduction to his thought and impact, perhaps? Charles Mills is quite a monumental figure in philosophy and in political philosophy in particular, and for what is a sort of emerging subfield, if you like, called the critical philosophy of race. He was a philosopher of Jamaican background, I understand, born in the UK, but grew up in Jamaica, and then completed his study his doctoral studies in Canada before moving over to the US, where he spent most of his sort of teaching life and where he lived until he passed away. And his, I suppose, defining contribution is that he really brought questions of race and coloniality to the fore and to the mainstream, um, really to the mainstream of what was and what still is a very white intellectual profession and intellectual discipline. And he did so in a really innovative and engaging way, but really paved the way for many other philosophers of colour to engage in the kind of work whereby they could engage philosophy as an academic discipline, but in ways that didn't sort of erase over questions of race, could take it very seriously, to take up questions of racial justice and their own experiences in a way that philosophy as a discipline was just not prepared to. And I think that's probably true of many academic disciplines. So it's a very, as a very sort of rough sketch of, I think, the profound contribution he's made. Um, you mentioned the critical philosophy of race. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, look, it's a term that's been used a bit more in recent times. I think the older term would be philosophy of race. And look, Mills has written a bit on, you know, what this subfield might point to. And it's a subdiscipline of philosophy that takes up questions of race and coloniality and takes up the the histories and the social construction of race in ways that are wedded to a, a political 
program, if you like, of finding ways to dismantle white supremacy and the legacy of racism. So it's quite wedded to an explicit political agenda, whereas older sort of what well, philosophy of race, I don't want to say all philosophy of race, because some people would take issue with that, but a non-critical philosophy of race, if you like, might take up questions of race in the way of what does what does race mean? Is, is race a biological category? Is it a social category? What are the metaphysics of it, etc.? Critical philosophy of race is, um, I think, more programmatic in its approach. And it, in doing so, it inherits the intellectual tradition of critical race theory, which, of course, emerges from critical legal studies. So it, it sort of brings that tradition directly into the conversation within philosophy. So I guess that's one of its distinctive features. So Debbie, your book was endorsed by Professor Charles Mills. He, said, he writes at the, on the back cover of your book, this courageous and hard-hitting text by Indigenous scholar Debbie Bar Galley reveals the ugly truth of systemic racial exclusion behind the liberal facade, a lesson not merely in the workings of the Australian Public Service specifically, but for the country far more broadly. What was your interaction with him like? I was deeply honoured to have Charles Mills, an academic and man of such intellectual brilliance to read my work to start with and then provide an endorsement. You know, I will be forever grateful and forever linked and engaged to his work. So I come to racial contact very early in my PhD doctoral research when I was first trying to work out um, a theoretical framework to use. So I was coming from critical race theory as a lens, but I was struggling to really look for a theory that spoke to me to explain white supremacy or the racialized positions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were faced with in Australia, but also you know, in my research problematic, which was examining the experiences of Indigenous employees in the Australian public service. I started examining the work of the racial contract under Dr. David Bennett, who was my first supervisor, um, and we were both Canberra-based. So we used to sit out on the footpaths drinking coffee and supervision meetings and discussing the racial contract for a long time in the very first part of my PhD journey. The racial contract became the theory that really underpinned the trajectory of my research and my subsequent book, you know, Unmasking the Racial Contract. Like Helen just explained, it was his intellectual rigour, his intellectual dignity and humility and gentleness that really attracted me to him and his work. So the racial contract in particular is, it was his most famous book, and it has this very powerful first line, white supremacy is the unnamed political system that has made the modern world what it is today. Helen, can you explain a little bit more about the argument of the racial contract? In very broad terms, the racial contract takes up the tradition of social contract theory, which was employed by many different um, political philosophers, liberal political philosophers, um, but in particular as used by a political philosopher called John Rawls, who was a hugely, hugely influential figure in um, American political philosophy at the time. And um, Mills's thesis is basically that American political philosophy uh, or political philosophy gets it wrong in that it completely obfuscates and ignores the fact that racism through slavery, colonialism, etc., were these fundamental uh, racial domination lies at the basis of um, civil society as we know it. And yet it doesn't get 
a word in at all in all these many many theories of how we come together as a civil society and what the basis of our political society is so the racial contract is trying to to uncover that to get at its root and i should note that he takes his cue from carol pateman who wrote the sexual contract earlier so he's using that model of uncovering what is at the basis of our political history and he's bringing race to the fore, but I think importantly to note to the foundation, to the very foundation. It's not that racialized people have been excluded from our institutions, et cetera. It's saying rather that uh, the way that we're understanding civil and political society is based on a racial domination, but that that's been largely ignored by the tradition. I think a good way to understand it is that Mills actually locates the social contract as actually being a racial contract. And it's can be described as a contract among white people for the benefit of white people. So it's an abstract way of thinking. How does that work and how did you use it in your analysis? In Australia, the racial contract began with the invasion and colonisation. Indeed, it may be thought of as a racial colonial contract. The racial contract is therefore a contract between those categorised as white over non-whites or in the context of Australia, non-Indigenous over Indigenous peoples. Mills argues that one has an agreement to misinterpret the world. One has to learn to see the world wrongly, but with the assurance that this set of mistaken perceptions will be validated by white epistemic authority. Therefore, the racial contract prescribes inverted ways of knowing or epistemologies of ignorance where white people live in what Mills calls an invented delusional world, a racial fantasy land disregarding racialized structures of inequality, and that in turn perpetuates systems of white supremacy. So in the terms of my work, I use the racial contract as a methodology, as a theory. I applied the concept of the racial contract in my research to place race and racism centre stage to identify the structural privileging of non-Indigenous employees over Indigenous employees. Beyond that, I investigated what this racial contract looked like within the space of the APS, and I drew on the experiences of Indigenous employees as a racialised group to examine the structural, systemic and institutional forms of racism that targeted and continues to target Indigenous employees in the Australian public service and in the workplace per se. What sort of influence did he have on philosophy? I guess, as I mentioned earlier, Mills's great influence was that he not only brought questions of race and racial injustice to the table, but he was quite fearless in calling out how our institutions, our political institutions and modes of organising, but even our academic concepts, our philosophical concepts themselves were fundamentally racist because they weren't addressing this racial injustice. So one way he did this, for example, is that in political philosophy, a lot of political philosophy is grounded in this idea of ideal theory. How do we come up with a just society in an ideal world? And Mills really flipped that on his head by saying, no, what we really should be looking at is non-ideal theory. How do we correct the injustices that already exist? Because if we start political philosophy by thinking about, you know, what's a perfect world? What are the best way to distribute power and resources, etc.? If to do that, your starting point is already to ignore the fundamental oppressions, whether they're gender oppressions, class oppressions or racial oppressions. So I think that was a very profound contribution of his, that he not only brought questions of race to the conversation, but he act the way he located them, I guess, as Debbie was saying, by really pointing out that the way that we've, we've been proceeding as a discipline, as an intellectual tradition is racist because it hasn't been taking that up. And so I think some of his work on white supremacy and his very unwavering calling it 
white supremacy is really important. And in terms of the racial contract, as Debbie mentioned, he talks about how we have this racial contract that is there and, and there are benefits that flow to white people, even if you're not a signatory to the racial contract. It's a sort of a structure that's there that white people benefit from, even if they don't sign up to it. And I think that's quite innovative in terms of today when we think about uh, racial injustice and whites who might struggle with the idea of responsibility or complicity if they themselves don't feel racist. And yet what Mills gives us is this framework to say, but there's a way in which you continue to benefit from racism and they these benefits flow to you, even though you might not have signed up for it. And that creates moral and political obligation. That was philosopher Helen No talking about Mills's idea of the racial contract. Earlier, Helen mentioned Mills's critique of liberalism. Before we take a break, here's Mills, by all account, a funny and charming man, talking about the whiteness of John Rawls at King's College. Rawls says we should think of society as a cooperative venture for mutual advantage. Now, as an ideal, that's great. But are actual societies a corporate venture for mutual advantage? Okay, so here's Rawls as filtered through Chris Rock as done by a somewhat inferior Charles Mills. So <laughs> never mind the inferior performance of Charles Mills, just channel Chris Rock and project him onto this person here. So this is the founding of the United States according to John Rawls, because remember the United States, well, all societies for Rawls, cooperative venture for, did I get that right, for mutual advantage. Okay, so once upon a time, there was a big land only the United States, remember. And on this land, there were three peoples. There were the red peoples, the white peoples, and the black peoples. The red people said, oh, white people, we're so glad to have you here. There we were, chasing the buffalo across the Great Plains. Got pretty boring after a while, you know. Been there, done that, you know. How many buffalo can you chase, you know? You've seen one buffalo, pretty well seen them all. Now that you're here, we're sure things are going to be different. As a measure of our gratitude that you're here, we're going to give you 98% of this land, you know, because we're not really using this. All this land, all this buffalo, we're going to give you 98% of it. So you might think, well, won't it be a bit crowded for the Western 2%? No, no, no. We will voluntarily undergo a 98% demographic collapse. So that means there'll be 2% left, so it'll fit well, 2% on 2%. White people said, thank you. <laughs> then the black people spoke up. The black people said, oh, white people, we're so glad you brought us here from Africa. As you know, it's a dark continent. Even if you try to turn on the lights, you can't see anything. Constantly being eaten by, you know, lions. And, you know, let's face it, we don't like to admit it, but each other as well, you know, lots of cannibalism on the dark continent. You grab what you think is a chicken leg. It's actually your cousin, but, you know, you eat it anyway. Lots of bad stuff happening there. The voyage over. Maybe a bit rough. We, we didn't realize we were going to be below the decks. We thought it was going to be first class. But anyway, not everybody made it, but you know, we're glad to be here. As a sign of our gratitude, you know what we're going to do? You have all this land. We're going to work this land for you for free. You don't have to pay us anything. The white people said, thank you. <laughs> what are you waiting for? Lift that barge, tote that bale. And that is the history of the United States, according to John Rawls, as passed through Chris Rock as channel ban in Fear Charles Mills. <laughs> a cooperative venture for mutual advantage. Thank you. I'm particularly fond of that routine if I say so myself. <laughs> now you might think it's absurd, and you'd be right. But it's an absurdity that white political philosophers have accepted and moved happily on. You know, it's hardly the case that anybody will point out 
Isn't there something crazy about this assumption? If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. What you were saying earlier sort of uh, reminded me of his other quite um, famous work, which is White Ignorance. Do you yes. want to talk about that? Sure. Um, so he, in one of his chapters in a book on race and the epistemologies of ignorance, he advances this idea of white ignorance. And it's this idea that it's not just a political violence, there's an epistemic violence at play as well, the way in which philosophy as a discipline, but I think we can extrapolate this to other disciplines as well, have not turned to questions of racial injustice. What accounts for that? Why haven't all these people who are supposedly so interested in the world and the way that we work, why aren't people looking at race and racial injustice if, if you're so interested in? And I think white ignorance plays quite a part in this. And the way he conceives of it is not just like, oh, we weren't aware, which is a comment that we get a, we get a lot, you know, oh, we weren't aware of the colonial history in this country, or we weren't taught, etc. But he frames it differently by saying, well, no, it's actually white ignorance. There's a, a certain sort of epistemic positional orientation here whereby whites and these are the institutions and, and culturally as well are essentially ignoring these histories. And it's active. It's something that both benefits white and the continuing domination um, or, or continuing white domination, but uh, white ignorance is itself a sort of epistemic position whereby the accounts and the questions of black people, of indigenous people, of, uh, of other not of people of colour um, are not taken seriously at all. And that's an epistemic position, meaning that their forms of knowledges um, are not ones that are, are taken up but this is a very active project on the part. It's a, it's a we didn't know, but because we didn't want to know. So the white ignorance really um, resonates with that quite famous formulation by Stanner that, that says that there's a great Australian silence about First Nations. Debbie, do you want to reflect on that a bit? Yes, Mills talks about, you know, white ignorance as being uh, one of the biggest um, cognitive you know, phenomena in the world and in the Australian context, I mean, that really is manifest through, you know, the silence around the true and actual histories of Australia in terms of, you know, dispossession and, you know, the ideas around terra nullius, you know, this belief that terra nullius was real. So there's this great Australian silence, what Stanner referred to, to explain, you know, what doesn't get talked about. There's almost like an amnesia in Australia about what took place and that's a purposeful or what, what Mills would explain as a willful ignorance not to know. 
So just to add to what Debbie has said there, Mills has this nice quote where he says um, in the white ignorance chapter, he says, so white normativity manifests itself in a white refusal to recognise the long history of structural discrimination that has left whites with the differential resources they have today and all of its consequent advantages in negotiating opportunities and structures. So that's that's Mills. It's it's a it's a refusal to engage in this, and I think that this, it's something quite active about it, and I think that's important to note. You know, I, I do think about how in Australia we don't, you know, we don't teach history of invasion and things like that. So there is that, you know, when people say I don't know, in a way they don't know. What Mills is talking about is the broader sort of project to to not let it be known. So mm. our so-called intellectuals mm. don't produce the stuff that you'd need to know, you know. I think one of the core issues is that race is never on the table and it's never up for discussion. And as Helen has highlighted that, you know, race has been primarily absent in philosophy or it's been done in a normalised way where Mills gives us a descriptive way to discuss, you know, the racial contact and, you know, white ignorance. But in the context of Australia, it's been largely absent because we don't have race studies. And I, as a social scientist, didn't study race. We mm-hmm. examined racism but did not study race per se. So he gives us a global framework to better understand race and racism, the way that it operates and operates globally, and we can contextualise that locally. There's an accountability, I think, that flows from his concept of white ignorance because it's it's no longer enough to say that we didn't know in reference to your question about, you know, what we're taught in schools, what we're not taught in schools. I think then his concept asks us, well, why didn't we know? Why weren't these histories taught, etc.? And because there was a refusal to know. And so then all of a sudden that becomes a question of complicity and a question of accountability, I think, in terms of what histories we're putting out there, what concepts we're interrogating. And as Mills would say, this is the racial contract in action. Mm -hmm. This refusal to write this into our educations or our understanding is a strategic ploy for us to not to know. So it becomes part of the racial contract. Willful ignorance becomes a tool of the racial contract, this will not to know and not to understand. So Mills um, uses ignorance to cover both false belief and the absence of true belief, he says. And when he looks at um, this, he's talking about in terms of ignorance or white ignorance, like the spread of misinformation, the distribution of error, the possibilities of massive error within the larger social cluster or group entity of whites and the social practices. So that sort of like describes where he's coming from in his thinking around that. Mills says that phenotypical whiteness is not enough to become a member of the white club. And over different times and different locations, different people can become members of the white club. So whiteness is not about colour per se. It's a technology of power that categorises who can be in and who doesn't belong to this white club. He conceives of, of whiteness, n- not purely phenotypically, but it's a social, it's a social um, positioning, if you mm. like. It's a, 
a social and political category whereby certain benefits and advantages flow and and importantly whereby if you're not deemed to be white then there are certain disadvantages that flow because I, I think that's important to note in the discourse around white privilege is that it's not always just about privileges and perks that whites get it's also about the deprivation of certain basic goods that are withheld from Black Indigenous people of colour. One way that Mills explores how foundational white supremacy as a political system is to our whole way of being, um, not just political society, is through his exploration of white time. And in a, a really insightful essay, he talks about how even something is that seeming, seemingly so basic and so fundamental as time is already racialized. A quote here that he says is that, so white time becomes not merely a Eurocentric periodization, but a demarcator of the appropriate use of time, conceptions of daily rhythms of work and leisure, as opposed to the general misuse of times Europeans found elsewhere. Whites are, position, are self-positioned as the masters of their own time against those mastered by time. So in that piece, he talks about how not just our understanding of time is already racialized. Think about in the Gregorian calendar, think about what dates kind of stand out as what structure our calendar, think about our most sort of COVID pandemic and how we're always striving toward a more COVID normal Christmas, right? Our whole sense of time is already built on a particular calendar, a particular cultural tradition. But he's saying more than that, the actual use of time, the way that white history has conceived of, of history itself, history itself is conceived as that when man, quote unquote, takes up time and uses it and makes it productive. And thinking about that in terms of how colonialism has always thought of um, First Nations people who it's, it's always conceived as being unproductive and not using time. The very definition of humanity itself is racialized temporally. So we were talking about white ignorance and how it works in Australia. I mean, the purpose of white ignorance essentially is to maintain white supremacy, right? I feel like facing the truth in a way, it's, it's, it's almost like it's, it's psychologically too hard for a nation because it's kind of, it, it's so shame inducing, right? Like look at what we have done. How, how do we address that? Like, how do we, because shame is not, people react badly to it. Like, how do we, I don't know, I kind of almost want like a practical solution, which I, there probably isn't one. If you're looking at Mills and you look at his view of the racial contract, you know, he says the racial contract is a contract and therefore it can be broken. But he says that there's not, he doesn't expect a mass exodus from the racial contract because there's no benefit in people to do so. So particularly here in this context of Australia, there's no benefit to wider Australia in their belief to break the racial contract or actually to acknowledge or to tell the truth or speak the truth to the histories of Australia and the way those histories contemporarily impact on you know, Indigenous peoples and other peoples of colour today in Australia. Maybe one way to answer that through Mills's own work is that, interestingly enough, uh, for, for all this critique of liberalism as a political theory, he actually, at the end, wasn't prepared to abandon it because he tried to coin uh, what he called a, a black radical liberalism, in which he said that questions of race and other forms of domination need to be taken centrally. But what he means by liberalism is very different to what we understand liberalism, because he says that if you kind of excavate, if you take away all the different versions of liberalism, free market liberalism, democratic liberalism, etc., and we get to its very fundamental core, it's really about these founding principles of 
the equality, the moral equality of individuals as the state is protecting those those interests and the idea of um, enable, the state enabling individuals to flourish. He thought that fundamentally they were quite good ideals to work with, but in order to really get there in a genuine sense, whites need to confront the injustice and the domination that they benefit from. To circle back to your question about how do we get around this sort of white ignorance if it's something that upholds white supremacy? I guess maybe his answer, and I'm, there's a bit of conjecture here, but his answer might be something like, well, if you're really fundamentally committed to the equality of all people as humans, then you need to take this up. You need to take up racial injustice and white supremacy because otherwise we are not genuinely working towards those, those goals yourself. That was philosopher Helen No talking about the challenge that Charles Mills posed to liberalism while holding on to its ideal. You also heard from race scholar Debbie Bargalli, who used Mills's work extensively in her doctoral thesis and book, Unmasking the Racial Contract, Indigenous Voices on Racism in the Australian Public Service. That's all we have time for tonight, I'm afraid. We usually end this show with a song, but tonight we have Debbie reading a tribute to Mills's work written in 2018 in an article titled Up From Rawls, Charles Mills's Effort to Save Liberal Political Philosophy from Itself. Christopher Lebron, who's an American philosopher, stated in an article that he thinks of Mills as our black Socrates roaming the philosophical streets, asking people why they think a society like ours, stained by a history of racial horrors, is not more ashamed of itself, and why its leading minds do not make that shame a motivating force in the struggle for a more just society. And maybe, alas, Mill's prophecies are like all prophecies, ignored until the future forces us to acknowledge them, finally positioning us to see the truth they contained all along. This is why we need Charles Mills. His effort to demand a reckoning with liberalism's weaknesses and limitations is also an effort to save liberalism, and that is a struggle to save ourselves as well.